Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week I explore the top stories making waves in the news and some that are just plain interesting. I'll connect you with the journalists and the people who know the story and bring you news without the noise so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of the Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the Weekend Edition, I'll be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. One of the big things we've been looking out for during this coronavirus pandemic is how well the economy is doing. And unfortunately, it's not doing the best. Last week, unemployment claims totaled 6.6 million, bringing the total number of applications to nearly 17 million since the pandemic has shut down huge parts of the economy. As a result of so many people applying for unemployment, people are having a tough time getting through and completing the process. For more on how tough the job market is right now, we'll speak to Dana Mattioli, reporter at the Wall Street Journal. With the economy sort of shutting down seemingly overnight, we're seeing giant companies taking unprecedented action. So Macy's and Gap and Marriott and Hilton, retailers, travel companies that have very little demand are shedding hundreds of thousands of jobs. And then other companies that might be more stable are instituting hiring freezes. So the unemployment numbers are pretty staggering right now. And it's a tough situation for a lot of these laid off Americans. They're filing for unemployment. Everybody's heard the news that Congress passed more funding and more money for unemployment benefits. But there's so many people calling their local offices that people are having a hard time getting through. So while the services are there, they can't start them yet. So I know there's a huge backlog that a lot of people are going through. And, and it's frustrating because you have to have this balance of what to do next. People need to pay rent. People need to eat and support their families. And it's tough when you can't get in the line so quickly. There's a giant backlog from what people are saying when they're trying to file, not only for individuals that are laid off, but also people who run businesses. The Small Business Administration is just totally overwhelmed, and it's very hard for these people to get loans to save their own businesses. They are companies who are hiring. They might not be the most desirable right now because of the current situation, but in these tough times, a job is a job. And if you need some income, there are places that are hiring. You know, we've talked about this before, grocery stores, Target, CVS, Walmart, pizza chains, and Amazon right now is hiring a ton of people. But these are all things where you're either face-to-face -face with customers or in the case of Amazon, you're in a factory with a lot of other people. But Amazon specifically, they're hiring a lot, but do people want these jobs? What's strange about the current economy is people are clamoring for these jobs. People that are totally overqualified for these jobs want these jobs. So Amazon announced 100,000 new jobs just a few weeks ago at a time when a lot of people are being laid off or furloughed. And these are warehouse worker jobs where you don't need an education. You don't need prior work experience. You definitely don't even need like a college education or a GED. And what we're seeing, and we had a story today about, is people that run businesses and executive chefs and people that are white collar workers trying to get these warehouse jobs just to make ends meet. You made a, a reference in your article that this has shades of the last U.S. recession 11 years ago where there was law school graduates, other big graduates turning to bartending or other low-skilled work because the market had dried up and they needed to work in the meantime. So Amazon specifically, they've raised their minimum hourly wage. They're mm -hmm. trying to recruit new people. And these jobs are filling fast. I think you mentioned they had 100,000 job openings. I think they filled like 80,000 of those already. 
They're having no trouble filling these jobs because they're so coveted because it's $17 an hour. When people have mortgage payments, they have kids, they have to put food on the table. The downside is a lot of the people I spoke to sort of came to this like moral crisis. They said, I need the money, but I'm afraid of going there and contracting the virus because these are warehouses with hundreds of people. Amazon, I know there was a lot of workers that were trying to walk out and prove a point. They wanted safer conditions there. What has Amazon done to help that? There's been a ton of walkouts. There have been at least 15 different warehouses where employees have contracted COVID. In response to this, Amazon has started to distribute masks to their warehouse workers to wear. That was not something that they had as a few weeks ago. They've also tried to space out the warehouses so that People are not within six feet of each other, which is sort of a hard thing to do. They also gave those workers paid time off if they felt ill or contracted the virus. So there are some measures, but as you can imagine, these jobs are the lowest at the totem pole at Amazon. At the white collar level, Amazon workers make hundreds of thousands of dollars a year. These workers make $17 an hour. So if they were to get sick, I mean, these are huge hospital bills people coming out of COVID are facing. You talked to a lot of people who were going through this. One in particular, he was a young guy. He's a 30-year-old. He used to do touring merchandise for musical artists. He applied for Amazon. I guess he got the job, but then at the end, he decided just to file for unemployment. He decided the risk wasn't worth it to get coronavirus. That's right. I spoke to um, the touring merchandising manager who makes his money with different musical acts at their concerts. And he makes pretty good money. He makes $65,000 a year in Tennessee. But then all of his concerts were canceled through August. And he was just in the middle of closing on a house, actually. So he applied at Amazon because they're the only place where he could find a job. He got accepted. And, you know, his first day of work, he couldn't show up. And he told me, you know, the risk of getting COVID wasn't worth it for $17 an hour. And that's just something that a lot of people are facing. But as I said, there are people that are hiring. It's tough work right now. But at the same time, these unemployment numbers are at historic levels right now. So we'll have to keep seeing what happens there. Dana Mattioli, reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Anytime. Throughout the country, millions of Americans are at stay-at-home orders. And one thing to keep an eye out on while we social distance and stay at home is how Americans are doubling down on some of their worst habits in order to cope with the mental and emotional stress of dealing with coronavirus. Alcohol sales and consumption are up, marijuana sales are up, and people are eating more and exercising less. For more on how these virus vices are taking a toll on people, we'll speak to Sarah Fisher, reporter for Axios. It depends on the household. You're hearing some people say, look, this is the best thing that's ever happened to my family. My teenage kids are home for dinner every night. I haven't spent this much time with my husband since he travels for work. So you're starting to hear some good stories. But to your point, we're also hearing about a lot of bad habits. So what do those look like? Alcohol sales are up 55% in the last week of March. We're seeing weed sales go up in places where it's legal. Porn consumption is up. We have people talking about eating too much, worried about gaining the Corona 15. And then, of course, it's hard to exercise. Gyms are closed. For people who live in cities and rely on walking to work and walking outside of the home, they're not getting that fitness. And so even though it is keeping us alive, you're right. A lot of people are doubling down on some bad habits to cope with this. And I want to take a little step back. I want to go through some of these individually a little bit. Alcohol sales, you said, were up 55%. Spirits up 75%, wine 66%, and beer up 42%. Obviously, bars and restaurants are closed, so people don't have this chance to go out. So they're doing it at home right there. You mentioned weed sales up. 
early on when this happened in, in California, and I'm sure it was the same in other states, these marijuana dispensaries were deemed essential businesses. And I know that they've seen huge sales. Some of them maybe even didn't expect it for themselves. On the porn consumption, Pornhub, which a lot of these metrics end up coming from them with regards to traffic and things like that, they were giving away free premium memberships to people in France and Italy to encourage them to stay home. And then as far as like eating more, uh, I'm definitely in that category. You know, I've been cooking a lot more, which is great. We've been ordering a lot, supporting our local businesses. But man, I am eating so much at home and then going straight to my Netflix and just chilling out, watching TV, playing video games. That's another thing here. Gaming has boomed a lot as well. So let's go back to some of those vices that you mentioned in the beginning. A couple things to note with the alcohol sales. I don't know necessarily that regulators have this in mind, but you have to remember about 80,000 people in the United States suffer from alcoholism. If you are in withdrawal, that's a serious medical condition that hospitals are not able to cope with right now. So when you look at it from that perspective, it does make sense that you want to keep liquor stores open as essential services because people otherwise who are addicted to alcohol would end up in hospitals. The other thing you should know is that a lot of those alcohol sales that are up are spirits. They're hard liquor. And what that suggests to me is that people are stocking up on types of alcohol that's going to last, it doesn't need to necessarily be refrigerated, and that's highly potent. You don't have to drink a lot at a certain time. It's a lot different than buying beer. Not many people have room in their fridge for beer right now when they're trying to stock up on food to limit grocery store visits. So when you drill down to a lot of these habits, they really do make a lot of sense. So I don't want to suggest that Americans are going off the rails, but what it does suggest is that People really do need to cope with this virus in unique ways, whether it's, to your point, streaming more video or playing more video games, drinking more alcohol or watching more porn. Everyone's got their own method of madness here. You think about the crazes that were going on at the supermarkets, everybody buying up toilet paper, trying to stock up as much as they can in case you don't go anywhere for two weeks. And you're right. And all of these things are those things that people need to get through the time, you know, or even their own fears, you know, they might be afraid, I can't get out, I'm not going to be able to get this. You're talking about people that have addictions and whatnot, I might not be able to get out and get those things. So they're going to stock up on those. It does take a toll. So these are some of the physical tolls, but there's a lot of emotional and mental health tolls that are also being taken. I know there at Axios, you guys were conducting some polls and people say that their mental health, their emotional health is also taking a big hit by all this. That's absolutely right. And I think part of the reason for that is that as weeks go on, more and more people are losing their jobs. They're feeling insecure about the future of their work, even if they haven't lost their job yet. They think they might. And more and more people say they know someone who's been diagnosed with the virus or that a family member has been impacted. These things are taking a heavy toll on people's emotional well-being. And as a result, we're also starting to see some of that play out in the home, unfortunately. We have seen increases in domestic violence skyrocket across the United States and in places around the world where there are heavy lockdowns. We're also seeing people go out and buy guns. Gun sales had their second highest month last March, simply due to the fact that people are so worried about this virus, they think it could cause civil unrest and they want to be prepared. It's truly Truly a one-of-a-kind situation. 
As far as the gun sales and the civil unrest part of it, in California, there was a conversation about what if you have to implement martial law, things like that. And right away, that gets people's minds going. You want to prepare for the worst and you just don't know what's going to happen. So hopefully some of the states that have experienced really heavy cases are going to hit the peak soon and things will start to taper off so that we don't have to worry about being on lockdown for so long. But I mean, at least until the end of the month, I know a lot of states have their restrictions going on and who knows how long they will go. So this will be something that is ongoing, but for those people that need it, make sure to get the help you need. And everybody has to take care of yourself the way everybody says we're all in this together. So we all have to help maintain each other. And the last point I'll make there is that the one silver lining that we have going for us here is that we're not the first country to go through it. China went through it, Italy, Iran, South Korea. We were able to watch how long this was able to take to sort of flatten out. And we're also able to see how long these countries have taken to recover. As I'm sure you heard, Wuhan, the nation province within China that has a population of 11 million people, finally opened for the first time in about three and a half months. And if it helps Americans feel better about this situation, at least that gives you a sense of how long this is going to be. Whereas in other places and in other situations around the world, people who don't know how long they're going to be on lockdown, you can imagine how much more angst that might cause. Sarah Fisher, reporter at Axios. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. And a little bit of news on the political front. Senator Bernie Sanders has dropped out of the race for the 2020 Democratic nomination for president. With no real pathway to overtake Joe Biden in the delegate count, Sanders is suspending the campaign, but still staying on the ballot to get as many delegates as possible to influence the party platform at the convention. For more on Bernie ending his run, we'll speak to Julia Manchester, political reporter at The Hill. But first, let's hear a clip of Bernie Sanders suspending his campaign. I wish I could give you better news, but I think you know the truth. And that is that we are now some 300 delegates behind Vice President Biden, and the path toward victory is virtually impossible. So while we are winning the ideological battle, and while we are winning the support of so many young people and working people throughout the country, I have concluded that this battle for the Democratic nomination will not be successful. And so today, I am announcing the suspension of my campaign. So essentially what he said today was he did not see a path forward with the nomination, citing Biden's insurmountable lead. However, Bernie Sanders did really speak to this movement he's created and essentially said, look, I understand that we need to pressure the Democratic establishment to pay attention to issues that we care about, whether it's income equality or Medicare for all. So he said he would stay on the ballot in the remaining primaries that are left and try to amass as many delegates as possible ahead of the Democratic National Convention. So at that gathering, the convention, he and the progressives in the room will be able to pressure the party to maybe embrace or at least consider a lot of these platforms. The problem is we know that former Vice President Biden has said that he's not willing to embrace Medicare for all, that he would rather maybe build upon Obamacare and improve that system. So there definitely could be some tension ahead. But the question is, how does Joe Biden go about unifying the progressives and the centrists in the Democratic Party? And what role does Bernie Sanders play in that? 
you got to kind of give it to Bernie Sanders. He never backs down from a fight. And he's right. always been this disruptor. I mean, it was the disruptor the last time when they went to the convention with Hillary. So who knows how crazy it would get at the convention, especially considering they're saying they might do a, a virtual convention and all that stuff. It's very much in flux what happens there. So as you mentioned, he did say he was going to stay on the ballot to bolster his progressive platform, but he didn't really also endorse Joe Biden. He said he expects him to be the nominee and all that stuff, but he didn't full out come out and endorse him. No, he did not. Very much of a contrast to what you've seen a number of the other candidates in the Democratic race this primary cycle to what they've done. You saw Amy Klobuchar and Pete Buttigieg essentially just hours or days after they dropped out of the race, they were endorsing Joe Biden. Mike Bloomberg, when he dropped out of the race in his concession speech, he endorsed Joe Biden. You didn't see that with Bernie Sanders. And, you know, I think the relationship that Biden and Sanders has does seem to be slightly better maybe than the relationship that Sanders had with Hillary Clinton. So that could lead to some differences. However, I think this speaks to the division in the party right now and where, you know, a lot of Sanders' progressive supporters are. There's a lot of skepticism towards Biden in that wing of the party. And there's also some skepticism, I would say, among more moderate Democrats, more moderate Democrats that were supportive of Hillary Clinton in 2016, who saw Bernie Sanders as a spoiler of sorts in her general election against Donald Trump. Ever since President Obama left the office, the Democratic Party has been in flux with how far left they should go. Should they go all the way to the progressive side? Are they going to continue to be moderate? Bernie Sanders has constantly said he's winning the ideological debate. But basically, after South Carolina, all of the nominating contests had gone very moderate. They all went for Joe Biden. And while Bernie Sanders has made a big impact on the party platform with things like Medicare for all for a free public college tuition and all that. Is the party more moderate this time around? I mean, can we say that just that's the way all the voting contests were going? I think the party is split right now. I think you have to look at polls and then actual turnout in voting. I think a major source of frustration for Bernie Sanders and his campaign was that in the polls, you saw him leading majorly among younger voters. However, those younger voters didn't seem to turn out enough in a way that would have put him over the edge, that would have given him a lead. So I think right now you are seeing that the party's more moderate voters, the more centrist voters, are simply turning out more. And that maybe the younger progressive voters that you saw turn up so much in the public opinion polling that they weren't turning out so much for Senator Sanders. Biden wasn't getting a lot of that support from that young vote in polls or even actual primaries. However, Senator Sanders at least was getting it in public opinion polling. Joe Biden, for his part, seemingly already kind of moving on to the general election. He had already announced that he was taking steps to begin his search for a running mate. He committed to getting a woman as his vice president. So I know he's kind of going on that search. And I think he thanked Bernie Sanders and kind of made those inroads to his supporters. So we'll have to see how that bears out for him. And President Donald Trump has also weighed in. He weighed in on Twitter. He kind of, you know, throwing a little shade in the Democratic Party saying, if not for Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders could have gone further. He said all of his supporters should come to the Republican Party. I don't know how much of that would happen since Bernie Sanders constantly kept saying, that President Trump is the most dangerous president they've ever had. 
Julia Manchester, political reporter at The Hill. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Don't forget to join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this is the Daily Dive Weekend Edition.